a retired couple decided to join some friends for a very special vacation. It was going to be their first cruise. When they arrived in Florida, uh, to board the ship, it felt like a dream come true. As they stood in line, it was a long line, and talked excitedly with their friends, anticipating what was in store, they decided it was time to reach for their passports. Well, he checked his pockets, asked her to check her purse. Both came up empty. So they put down their, their luggage, opened it up, looked through everything in there, looked through everything again, and they couldn't find their passports. Well, it was still a few hours before the ship would depart, so they had time to go back to their hotel, search everything in the room, no passports. Now panic set in. They rushed back to the dock to inquire, is there some other form of ID that might, uh, might work here? But the answer was no. So that afternoon, they stood on the dock and watched as the boat slowly moved out of the harbor, sobbing as they waved at their friends on the balcony. And immediately, a sense of bitterness started to creep in. They began to question God's love, God's wisdom, God's power, how would he allow such an event to take place? Such a disappointing event. Such an an apparently pointless disappointment. What kind of God is this? We can all identify with that, can't we? Because when God's plan takes a turn that diverges from our own, our immediate instinct is that our plan would be better. Such unexpected and unwanted interruptions and delays seem to happen frequently, disrupting our plans, sometimes even catastrophically. And it happens to everyone. You remember how the Uh, letter to the Romans opened. After uh, uh, several verses of greeting, Paul began to describe to the Roman people at, at that church that he had planned to go to visit them several times and had been prevented so far. Prevented by what? Circumstances. Uh, I'd like to imagine that Paul had his bags all packed Had a ticket. Didn't work out. And very often those tickets aren't refundable. It's not an easy way to rearrange your plans. Well, as Paul draws chapter 11 to a close, 
he has a primary purpose in mind here. Since chapter 9, he's been, he's been engaged intently on a very important question. Having taken eight chapters to describe the, the fullness and the freeness, the availability, the purpose of God's saving plan, and how the Jews were right at the heart of that, but then had to face the reality, because he knew everybody else would be wondering, how can God plan to save the Jews? And here they are on the outside of the gospel, refusing Christ. So he's been answering that, and it's been a, a very uh, purposeful, very uh, careful unfolding of this argument. Now he draws all that to its conclusion and provides the the. the, the clincher that this is still God's plan unfolding. But before this passage ends, Paul has effectively broadened that scope from just how God saves and who God saves. He's broadened it to God's plan, insights into God's plan for all his people through all of life. There's a very important message for us in this passage then. The truth here is that God will fulfill his perfect plan. It is perfect. And he is going to accomplish everything that he said he would. And many other things that we don't even know about and can't expect. But he's in control of it all. That requires an important response. If he really is in control, if he really is wiser than you are, if he really is ultimately going to accomplish everything and all of it's good and all of it's the best, if all of that's really true, there's really only one option left, and that is to embrace God's plan. Now, embracing it's not hard to do when things are matching our expectations very nicely. But it's all those times when they're not matching up at all. Embrace God's plan, urges Paul. Embrace his will in all that happens. Now, he's got three reasons a couple of reasons, and then a little more detail about that response throughout this passage. In verses 25 to 27, the Lord reveals here the outcome of his plan. He wants us to assure, here to assure us that he's going to get there. He's going to get to that good ending, an ending that everybody is going to be able to look back on and, and say, yep, he, he did it. And wow, it was way better than I could ever have planned. Well, he gives us some insight about the outcome. It's still going to leave us with a lot of things that we don't know, particularly in our own individual circumstances. How's this going to accomplish God's purpose? We don't get those kinds of answers anywhere, almost any time. But he does reveal the outcome of his saving plan because we need to learn to trust him. 
So verse 25, and here he begins actually with the problem. The problem is us and our limited perspective. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight. Man, did he just nail it. I could come up with a better plan than God could in this instance. Okay, when's that ever occurred to you? Too many times to count. But lest you be wise in your own sight, lest you hold your expectations, your plans for the future in such high regard, let's look at God's plan. In this verse, in the first part of verse 26, Paul assures us that God will save his people. First of all, that statement applies to the Gentiles. He will complete his plan for the Gentiles. As verse 25 continues, I want you to understand this mystery. Uh, A mystery in the New Testament is always something that God's doing, but we can't figure it out in our own strength. We're just not smart enough. Well, let me give you some insight, Paul says. God gave him this insight. He shares it with us. Uh, So lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery. Here it is. A partial hardening, and that's been part of his explanation of the Jewish situation so far. A partial hardening, partial because some are coming to Christ. But a partial hardening has come upon Israel But there's a time when that's going to change. He says it's going to continue, though, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Fullness of the Gentiles. This is not a typical way for Scripture to describe salvation, but it indicates that God has a particular number in mind. And there's coming a day when that number is going to be complete. We don't know how all this works together, but there is a fullness that one day in the future we are going to arrive at. And at that point, something is going to change. But so far, we have this assurance for the Gentiles that he will save all his people in that category. We go on to verse 26, where he says, and in this way, the way here is the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, we could wish we had like another verse or 10 to give us a little more insight as to how this is going to unfold. But we're not limited to this one passage. In just a moment, we'll go on to see that Paul can quote some Old Testament verses to describe this. But I'd like us to also consider another one that we are familiar with. How is it going to be? Well, let's look at the rest of 26 and 27 first, and then we'll I'll I'll read to you some insights from an Old Testament minor prophet. 
In quoting the Old Testament, Paul is once again, as he's done so often in chapters 9 and 10 already and chapter 11, he is showing that God will keep his promise. He made a promise to Israel. He's going to keep that. Here's some insight that tells us that he was always intending to do that. And he quotes here, from Isaiah 59. He says, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Well, that sure hasn't happened yet. There is plenty of ungodliness in Jacob. This is still a future event, that he will come from Zion. Actually, Isaiah uses the word redeemer. A redeemer will come from Zion. Zion here seems to actually be representing not Jerusalem in the Middle East, but heaven itself. The redeemer will come. And he's going to change the circumstances in Jacob. So what are we talking about here? This is none other than the second coming of Christ. When the fullness of the Gentiles is complete, God will send his son back to this earth. And the very first order of business is going to be the Jewish people. As he goes on in verse 27, and this will be my covenant with them. This is the completion of a promise that God made when I take away their sins. Actually, Paul has a reduced quotation. He's kind of passed over some of what Isaiah has to say. Uh, just, I think just for the sake of time, because it's all appropriate. So I have encouraged in the discussion questions for our uh, adult Bible fellowship this morning, that you go back and take a look at Isaiah 59. Uh, we won't take the time to do that now, But I do want to read for you from Zechariah chapter 12 that I think describes this very same event. Zechariah 12.10 says this. This is God speaking. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is God's initiative. He's going to take an action and he describes it as pouring out. Pouring out what? a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. He's going to pour upon the Jewish people a spirit of grace. That is, God's going to give them the gift to see reality as they've never seen it before. And the result is going to be also a further gift of God. They pleading with God for mercy. What could prompt such a change of perspective for those that for centuries as a people have been resisting the gospel? Here it is. Zechariah 12.10 continues. So that when they look on me, second coming of Christ, they will see him coming in victory. When they look on me, 
on him whom they have pierced. See, it's Christ himself they see. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. It's almost like they're saying, we didn't realize it was you, our Messiah. And there's going to be a sweeping event of salvation. So much so that Paul can describe it as all Israel will be saved. Now, each one of those that participate in that great event will have to make their own decision to trust Christ as Savior individually. There is no such thing as group conversion. But the vast majority of them will, so that Paul can honestly say, all Israel Doesn't mean there won't be exceptions, stubborn holdouts, but so many that God will have fulfilled his promise. He will have saved his people. That it happens at the second coming of the Messiah to earth and that it brings the completion of God's covenant with them. We are all to marvel at this point. What a plan. Who could have come up with such a plan? And who could carry this out? The intent of this passage so far is that for all of our misgivings about what is God doing, we need to reflect that he's got an end game in mind. And he is going to get there. It's going to be great. You are going to be thrilled, even though you can't see just how all of this is going to end up with that. But he has a path. He has a way. By God's grace, we seldom know that path ahead of time. We seldom get answers to the question, why? Why this? How does this help? We don't get those answers because we're supposed to accept the outcome by faith. To trust this God, to embrace this plan, even if I don't understand it. So a sudden sickness A flat tire at at a most inconvenient moment. A leaking water heater right when you're ready to take a bath. Paul says, decide to embrace God's plan and give up the, the idea that you can convince him that yours might be better. Now, besides knowing the conclusion of the story, Paul also goes on now to provide some other background to the particular issue of uh, this interplay between the salvation of Gentiles and Jews. This all seems so haphazard to us, but Paul wants us to realize, no, no, this is a very carefully weaving together of seemingly contradictory circumstances 
Let's see how God does this. And in so doing, appreciate that God is putting on display here the wisdom of his plan. We are to marvel at what he has come up with. Not just where it's going to end up, but how he's going to get us from here to there. There is a gracious purpose both for Gentiles and for Jews. Now, Paul's going to address some very difficult questions here and to show that God's plan has this perfect balance between what we have wrestled with back in chapters 9 and 10, the interplay between God's choice and man's choice. God has given people a free will, and he reserves his own prerogative of his gracious choice. What baffles us, humanly speaking, is how can both of these be true at the same time, and yet they always agree? All right, well, God is here in his great plan. He is balancing the human choice with his own choice. So verse 28, he, he here presents the tension. Uh, God acknowledges this tension. He says, as regards the gospel, they, he's still talking about the Jewish people, are enemies of God. All right, well, that's a fact. Because they have rejected the gospel. Because they have taken a position of hostility against God God is also hostile to them. They are God's enemies. And that we can see that. Uh, By and large, the Jewish people, with the exception of the remnant that have trusted Christ. As regards the gospel, then, they are enemies of God for your sake. Well, how does that benefit us? Well, he already told us that earlier. He told us it was because of their rejection of the gospel, that God opened it up to Gentiles. Whoa, that's a huge benefit. So it's for our sake that God let them go their own way for now. But here's the other side of that tension. As regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers. That is, God made some promises to, specifically, Abraham, that's where it started, Isaac, and Jacob. And the promise wasn't just for their salvation. It's for the salvation of their descendants. And on that basis, God says, these enemies of mine, I love them. I love them because of the connection they have with their forefathers, the patriarchs, and because of the promises that I committed myself to. In other words, Israel chose to sin, but God chose to save. How can those two be reconciled? That's verse 29. God will accomplish his purpose. He says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
God has made a sovereign decision that assures his success. God is never frustrated. Think of that. In history, he has never been frustrated. Well, that didn't work out the way I wanted. I don't know what to do now. He's never had that experience. God has made the sovereign decision to save. And that's why we now understand from the outcome of his plan, he is going to save that generation of Jews through his son. Verses 30 and 32, equally important, to tell us that God distributes his grace evenly between Gentiles and Israel. Verse 30, he says, and he's, here's the interweaving of God's plan for both groups. He says, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God. Okay, yep, uh, we were all there, right? Not just as a category, Gentiles, we were on the outside of God's plan for centuries. But individually born into this world as an enemy of God. So this is us. You were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. Because they rejected the gospel, God opens it up to us. And and in a sense, that's a plan B, but in another very important sense, it was God's plan all along. He even told Abraham, the grace and the promises I'm giving to you are going to extend to all the families of the earth. You see, what looks to us like plan B was plan A all along. But just as you were disobedient, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, they said no, and God said, okay, then time for the Gentiles. Here's the other part of that. So too, in verse 31, have, uh, so they too have now been disobedient. That's right now. That's what's going on. In order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. The now doesn't mean Right now, like it's happening right now, it's the now of the expectant future. The now when God says, that's it, that's the last of the Gentiles to get saved, tells his son, it's time for you to go back, finish the job of of redeeming the Jewish people and bringing this whole era of church history to a close. That's the now, the second now in verse 31. Uh, verse 31 in the ESV is, uh, is a fine translation of this, but I'd like to suggest one change that actually would reflect the parallelism between verse 30 and verse 31. Verse 30 says, They have now been disobedient in order that by the mercies shown to you. But it's the exact same uh, syntax that Paul used in verse 30 to say, 
because of their disobedience. Either translation is legitimate, and they both, uh, the interpretation works fine, but let's read it the other way. So too now, uh, they too now have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, because they see this mercy of God, and I have to wonder, I don't have any special insight about this, I just have to wonder if this fullness of the Gentiles coming in isn't just that it's kind of trickling to a close and finally it's the last one. I'd like to imagine it's actually going to be a swelling tide. The fullness of the Gentiles comes in that is sufficient to get the attention of the Jewish people around the world. Whoa, what's attracting them? What's going on here? That's not necessary. I just like that. So I just share my, my perspective on that. The fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And because of that, that has an impact on the Jews. And then they see their Messiah, and they see the remains of the wounds that they inflicted. And they mourn. God gives them the grace to repent of their sin and to trust Christ as Savior. What's really amazing in verses 31 and 32 is that God is using sinful choices that we might think would frustrate his plan. Israel rejects the gospel. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, he's in control still. He uses the sinful choices of people to advance his purpose. And verse 32 is a summary. It's a summary of what he's just said. It's also a summary of everything Paul has said going all the way back to chapter 1. This is a huge verse. Paul's put it in very concise wording. But don't miss the impact of what verse 32 has to say. For God has consigned all to disobedience. Consigned. That doesn't mean God made them do the wrong thing. It means God has let everyone experience the impact of their own sinful choices. The impact of what that means for life on this earth. The impact of what that means for eternity. He has enclosed everyone within the reality of their own unbelief. His point here is that Jew or Gentile, we have all had that opportunity. The opportunity to realize, I'm hopeless. And I can't do anything about it. I have rebelled against the God of this universe. And nothing I could ever do can change that. That's what it means to be enclosed, to be consigned to disobedience. 
Why would God want us to feel that? The answer, that he may have mercy on all. Because God can only save people that realize they can't save themselves. You have to, you have to be lost before you can be saved. He has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. No escape from sin except the gospel. What a verse. But we are to look over these recent verses and to conclude, what a God! What wisdom! How did he ever come up with this? Maybe I should trust his wisdom. Maybe he's smarter than I am after all. When I was in high school, a local TV station hosted a weekly program that they called As Schools Match Wits. The thing I remember about that program the most is the introductory music. It was a really catchy trumpet trio. That was my introduction to that song. So it was really bright and cheery, and it was a fun program because they invited area high schools to send a representative team, and they would compete with another invited team. So they did this all over the region, and it spawned some real interest among those with high schoolers in their household. And so I, I enjoyed watching that. Uh, particularly when I got into high school and I knew the contestants that our team would send. Uh, One time our team was on and I was anticipating a really good match because I knew our team members to be really bright. I mean, they were the, the kids in the class that teacher asked a question, their hands always up right away. I'd have to think about it a little bit. Uh, Wow, these guys are good. But we weren't too far into the program that evening when we realized, that other team's pretty good too. In fact, they seem to be a little brighter. In fact, the program revealed they were a lot smarter. We had a terrible showing that evening. And at the end of it, we had to acknowledge... This was sad to admit. They knew better than we did. You see, that's exactly what God wants us to conclude from this description of his wisdom. He knows better than I do. Who'd have guessed? Now, we have no problem sitting here acknowledging, oh, of course, who would question that? Now, the questions come up when God's plan takes a turn. What? What sense does that make? Oh, well, wait a minute. Here's, Here's the plan. We are to conclude, oh, this is God's wisdom at work. 
I shouldn't be surprised that I don't understand it. God, I embrace your plan. This is now where Paul broadens his message beyond just salvation, and he expresses it in a majestic hymn of praise to God. I think these, uh, these next verses that conclude this chapter are a hymn of praise that Paul has woven together himself. And, and my guess is that the early church, once Paul had uh, written this down, even put it to music. Because look at the beauty. Look at the importance of what it has to say. Ultimately, these verses are, are uh, saying that God deserves your worship. For his plan. This ought to change how we live. It's an emotional expression. Paul is in awe of what he has just told us about God himself. We need to share that awe. First of all, in verse 33, he tells us God understands how life works. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. The riches. God has all the resources he needs to make his plan happen. The wisdom and the knowledge. He can figure this out. He can weave this intricate plot and have it all come out right in the end. In other words... God is wise. And us? We're foolish. That's the reality of it. Only he could devise this amazing plan. His judgments and his ways, those are his providential control. That is God's ability to make his plan work. And he's got all he needs. Some more Old Testament allusions here in verses 34 and 35, telling us that God has power. What do we have? We have weakness. For who has known the mind of the Lord? These are rhetorical questions. What's the answer? No one. No, we don't understand. Or who has been his counselor? Who's given God good advice? No one. Not me. It's never happened. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? To whom does God owe anything? No one. And no one can argue with any of that. Finally, in verse 36, God is the key to how life works. And here Paul gives us a foundational truth about God and then gives us the benefit of how to respond to that. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Oh, it's a kind of a statement where we have to step back and say, 
I've got to let that sink in. From him. Everything starts with God. He's the source of everything. From him are all things. Through him, God is the agent that makes things happen. He's in control of everything. From him, through him, apart from him, none none of these things take place. But there's one more. And to him, he is himself the goal of everything. His purpose is the guiding force for everything. What's left? Where do we fit into this? We fit into this with humble worship to him. Bowing before him. And he's not just thinking here of Sunday morning worship service. He's got in mind your whole life including every disappointment. He must be your object of praise, your devotion, your submission to his will. Only him. He's the only one worthy. On the long journey home, that retired couple had plenty of time to discuss their experience. And they seem to have explored all the options of how to respond from self-pity, poor us, to self-anger. How could we be so stupid and not bring our passports? They also explored the options from submission to God to, what's the alternative? Bitterness toward him. God, you're not treating me right. But they were familiar with the biblical truth of God's sovereign will. So on that ride home, They arrived at the decision to trust God's wisdom and embrace his plan. And to look forward to another opportunity to go on a cruise, which God provided. That decision settled their hearts. It was a moment that they went from anxiety to Ah, peace in the heart. Your whole life can be anxiety, fear, or it can be peace, trusting God. And the circumstances be exactly the same, and you can have either of those that you want. Romans 11 urges that you choose to embrace God's plan. There's no room left for self-pity. No room for anger, bitterness. 
In any particular trial, if you've already uttered your complaint, okay, well, what do you do then? I've already messed up. Then you ask for his forgiveness. God, I'm sorry. I was questioning your wisdom just now. But your wisdom is beyond question. Would you help me to embrace your plan? That's what God needs to hear from each one of us. Will you let him hear that from you right now? Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we are humbled this morning by the glimpse that you have given us the outcome of your plan, the wisdom of your plan. Father, how worthy you are of our submission to that plan. Lord, we long for victory over our instinctive sense of our own wisdom. Father, help us to shun our wisdom as nothing but foolishness. And your plan as nothing but perfection and fulfillment. What is best? Father, help us to choose your plan and how we respond to every disappointment. Father, we pray for the fulfillment of your plan, the salvation of souls, for more Gentiles to come to Christ, for more of Israel to come to Christ, for the day that you send your Son and bring all of this to its culmination. In the meantime, we ask for your grace to submit to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.